you know, I like to go back and forth between the past and the present. But as I'm going uh, uh, the present, and, uh, you know, I think, what does it mean to, an, to, to be an Albertan today? This boom that we're in the midst of is unlike anything we've seen before. The, the last booms are nothing compared to the magnitude of this boom. Uh, the amount of wealth being generated in Alberta is, is amazing. It's also amazing to be living in a society where we have the capacity to do almost anything if we had imagination, if we had a real community that could talk about things. For instance, we could easily say, this is going to be the education jurisdiction in North America. We're going to have free education here. We're going to make this a, just a beehive of creative people who are dedicated to the concept of education. And we could afford to have people from all around the world coming here and studying free. We could do something like that. But how would you have such a discussion in Alberta? Where is the medium for such a discussion? Last year, Don Hill had a show. He had a show on CBC Radio, a little show called Wild Rose Forum. And it was becoming a community of interest. There was tens of thousands of people who would tune in every day, thoughtful Albertans. And uh, he was an educated guy. He could be a pain in the ass sometimes. Hi, Don, if you're listening. I'm sure you'd say the same of me. But he's a, quite brilliant at his best. And... Uh, um, and um, and he was building up a listenership. Uh, he started to deal with the reality that Alberta was the test tube, the laboratory for Enron and power deregulation. That much of this was going on in Alberta. Alberta was at the front end of this. And Jim Dinning was involved. And to me, that's a huge story. Enron is a big world global story. There is this connection of what went on in Alberta and eventually, you know, it led to deregulation in California. But Don was starting to tell the story uh, of how uh, this had unfolded in this jurisdiction. He's taken off the air. He's taken off the air. And suddenly we have no place for a, a consistent discussion about the future of Alberta. Uh, you know, I find it very strange to, to be in a society with this much advantage, which with this much hold on the future, but no, we, I mean, is, is, is the Alberta energy to be used for U.S. national uh, policy? I mean, that's what I would say the current status quo is that uh, the oil resources in Alberta have been developed from Houston, from Dallas. Uh, this north-south system prevails. Uh, if uh, you were to talk about uh, why, don't we ch why don't we consider changing this? Why don't we develop some concept of how we could use this tremendous wealth and resource for our own interests rather than the interests of U.S. national policy? And the way the U.S. is acting right now as a military power, obviously oil and gas is essential to this. They can't continue their aggressiveness without easy access to this oil and gas. Uh, so I think it legitimate to, to raise the question, uh, what about the future of oil and gas in Alberta? Could we have a discussion about that? Or could we ha have a debate on that? Or would you be shut down before you could even you know, get, to, get to square one on that? 
so um, so here's a, a part of the history of Alberta, uh, the whiskey trading. It's it's obviously a very um, it's a difficult subject to address to talk about. Uh, certainly, there were uh, wise elderly Blackfoot people who understood this was this was doing huge devastation that it couldn't continue. And so there was some appreciation for the Northwest Mounted Police uh, shutting this down. This is one uh, consistent thing in the, in the treaty negotiations. There is often uh, a request. We don't want whiskey traders. We don't want uh, people making business selling our people alcohol. And uh, that's one part of the treaties that found its way into the Indian Act. Uh, and of course, uh, with the coming of the vote in 1960 and the suggestion that Indian people would start to become citizens of Canada, how could you say that a particular group couldn't have the same access to alcohol as, as others? So there was a, a, a court case, the Dry Bones case, that started to say, well, the outcome was that Indian people, it was no longer illegal for them to have liquor, to consume liquor. Uh, but that's just since the early 1960s, so, so th this, is a, this has been a major uh, change. Now, if, uh, if I jump forward in this, uh, in this uh, volume here, here's a picture of the boarding schools. My goodness, don't look like the happiest people, do they? So with the coming of the, the railway, of course, where was the railway going to get its capital? 45 million acres would be given over to the Canadian Pacific Railway for the capital to build the railway. So Indian people would have to be cleared off the land. Uh, they'd have to be cleared off the land to make way for the privatization of the land, the transformation of the land into private property, and the transfer of the land to immigrants, primarily from Europe. So the, the railway changed everything. Uh, how would people adapt to the new life? So the, the boarding schools became uh, a big part of that. Um, here's a... Uh, this is a very common uh, genre of picture or it's a whole uh, type. Uh, so here, here's this fellow uh, before he goes to the boarding school, and here he is after he goes to the boarding school. So this before and after type of picture was, uh, I've seen it replicated again and again. And of course, these churches had to raise money. They had, did have some government grants, but they were uh, you know, seeking donations. Um, they were advertising uh, the good work that they were doing. Here's um, was summer of 1994 when I finished my PhD thesis. I, uh, every time a birthday comes up, it you know raises the question: Well, what about Indigenous people, and is this really something to celebrate? Um, but in the uh, front of that, uh, uh, three little Indians, wild and unkempt. 
three little Indians um, institute pupils. So this is this is of course is part of the um, uh, this very harsh approach to saying, well now Indian society is obsolete. Indian society doesn't belong in the modern world. Indian culture is an anachronism. The best we can do for people is to assist people to put aside their, their languages, their Aboriginal languages, um, banish their languages. And, and, and we're dealing with, uh, with the aftermath of that. Uh, many court cases come up uh, as a result of what happened in these boarding schools. But, you know, there's other pictures of here is a, um, a volume, Sur les traces des Amérindiennes. Uh, it's published by the government of Quebec. And it's probably a bit of a propaganda um, tract in that ever since Oka, uh, Quebec's Indian policy is uh, under criticism. Um, uh, and so the government uh, counters with different acts. but. As far as I can see, this is a, uh, a group, this is a, 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 of Innu people. They used to just call themselves Montaigne, and now they call themselves Innu. And this is uh, going off to the hunt. But you can see a very, uh, you can see a very, uh, a real amalgamation of cultures, where it's really a blend. It's not uh, one displacing another, like these uh, boarding school pictures. Uh, Kateri Takakwita, Sister Eva Solomon, a friend of mine who did her uh, degree in Native American Studies when Native American Studies first started here. She, she was uh, often seeing Pope Paul um, about uh, the beatification of Kateri Takakwita. And so this is at Ganawagi, uh, some kind of religious event. Um, Here's the picture that I really think is interesting. So here is uh, at St. Anne de Beaupre. And this is some kind of pilgrimage to uh, um, St. Anne de Beaupre. And you can see that, uh, you know, there's much intermarriage. You can see that people are blended in a sense. And yet uh, here they're affirming their Indian identity. When I bought this, somebody told me this is the famous Jules Siwi. Uh, Jules Siwi took a lot of his inspiration from uh, uh, Louis Riel, and he founded during World War II something called uh, uh, the Indian National Government of North America. And last year, I was on the witness stand for 20 days talking about the modern-day outgrowth of this uh, uh, interesting uh, political, um, this polity, this, the North American Indian nation. Some, some are trying to keep that alive. But you see, uh, you can definitely see a, a blending, a, a successful marriage of cultures, of societies, that this idea that you have to eliminate uh, Indian identity uh, through the process of assimilation. This, is, this isn't um, universal. I'll, uh, I'll draw this to a close, but uh, while I've got Alberta in my sights here, um, 
I already showed this photograph, but uh, the uh, meeting of the Ku Klux Klan in Edmonton, the Klan was active during the Crow's Nest Pass minor strike of that year, attacking both Communist Party involvement and non-English miners. So this concept that Eastern Europeans, largely, and especially the focus was often on Jews, were aliens, that they were coming from outside and bringing um, foreign ideas uh, to the workforce. Um, now, you know, this doesn't, <laughs> this looks kind of benign, although you, you'll, you'll notice a kind of uh, uniformity of, of white faces. Um, it's interesting to think, does this, does this uh, constituency, did it disappear? Or does it continue to exist in some new form? Uh, did this, did, did, did what, did what drew these people together? Does it, is there, does there continue to be um, a reflection, an echo of this? This is a wonderful illustration here. This is from, uh, give you a sense of, politics of Alberta early in the 20th century. So the Calgary Daily Herald, Tuesday, June 17, 1919. Canadianize our alien workers, the grasping hand of the IWW, the International Workers of the World. The IWW had a strong presence in the Crow's Nest Pass. The International Workers of the World is a, is a communist uh, Assertion. It's a communist enterprise. It, it, it came together before the uh, Russian Revolution when the Soviet Union was created. But you can imagine after the Soviet Union was created in 1917, suddenly the, the reality uh, that communism represented a threat, uh, this, this is uh, reflected in many ways. So, so here is the grasping hand of the international workers of the world. Um, and uh, here's what the authors of this uh, uh, advertisement have to say. Bolshevism offers no possibility of advance for labor. It's an imported theory fomented by foreigners, which is impractical and incompetent. Men that never knew how to get money will never know how to keep it. Bolshevism, though doomed to extinction, may not die before several nations of the earth have had a big dose of it. Russian history is turning somersaults and breaking its neck by turning the factories over to workers without any directing boss or head. The uh, equitable distribution is of little value if little is produced. In Russia, Bolshevism must be left to burn itself out. In Canada, it must be fought with the ancient weapons of a free people, the applied principles of law and order under a government of the people, by the people. That's a reference to the Gettysburg Address, of course. The average uh, normal man believes that the toilers will see ultimately that there is nothing in the false doctrine that everything depends on loyal and continuous support of labor. The good spirit then developed should never be lost. Democracy does not always get the best, but it always gets what it wants. It reserves for the people to write to, the right to make their own mistakes. We do not believe in the class idea, but that one man is as good as another. 
The Canadian labor does not hate millionaires. He may be a millionaire himself someday. Most men of success have labored with their hands and have begun small and raised themselves above the other fellow. So that's uh, uh, the man promoted is the coming businessman. So that, of course, is the Horatio Alger story, the promise that, yes, you may, you may, be, you know, you may be exploited, you may be poor, but you might make it, your children might make it, there's the chance you could become a millionaire. So rather than remaking the system, let's maintain the system and try as individuals to take advantage of our, of our opportunities and become millionaires. And that you know, clearly has been a compelling argument. Of course, that argument was much less compelling in uh, the Great Depression, which represented a, a, a huge the capitalist world, capitalism was apparently broken. Uh, Germany dealt with it one way. Uh, the United States dealt with it another way. Here's the on to Ottawa trek in Medicine Hat, June 1935. The trek was organized to pressure the federal government to abolish uh, work camps for single men. So these are these famous uh, people riding the, riding the rails, which happened often in, in the Depression. And uh, there was no way the on to Ottawa trek was going to get to Ottawa. And it uh, was abandoned in, in, in Regina. Um, so let's take a break and I'll uh, regroup. So I'll re remind you that I'm um, riffing on you know, where is here? What's Alberta? Where, where does it come from? What's Canada? Where does it come from? What's the United States? Where does it come from? What do we mean when we say the Western Hemisphere? Why is it called the Western Hemisphere? Latin America. Uh, and, and the effort is to orient ourselves, to look from where we are, wherever here is, and, and uh, uh, Northrop Fry points out that that's a pretty complicated question when you really think about it. Where is here? How do we situate ourselves? What's our platform? Uh, each website, I suppose, is a kind of platform. It, it's kind of oriented to the rest of the net. What's, what's its orientation? I think of um, snowboarding. Skiing is pretty linear, straightforward, but you know, snowboarding, you're going down the hill, and suddenly you're going down the hill and you're totally, the mathematics have totally shifted. They've, they've totally reversed themselves but you're still going down the same hill. I mean, it strikes me that's, that's kind of the, the challenge of dealing with globalization these days. You've always kind of got to reorient yourself to, to uh, configuration, to a constellation of, of changing points of reference, um, at least to be able to be conscious about where is here, what's, what are, what's the ground we're standing on. That's, that's the effort here. Let's take a break for mature. Uh, <clears throat> so that's where I'm headed. Um, it does occur to me, though, before I leave uh, Alberta and the uh, relationship between indigenous peoples and newcomers and fur traders and look, looking at uh, colonization and the treatment of indigenous peoples and, and what it's meant uh, historically and in the present um, when I first moved to, uh, I'll, I'll reflect a little bit on 
personal experience. When I first moved to uh, southern Alberta, my first year teaching here um, was 1990, the Indian summer when Oka was happening. Uh, there were different protests across the country. This is at the irrigation weir on the Pagan Reserve where the Old Man River is diverted into the system that uh, is the Lethbridge North Irrigation District. And this actually is a band council meeting which happened after uh, the RCMP began to uh, come into the territory essentially to uh, shut down um, a, a ditch which the Pagan Lone Fighters had, were digging around this installation. And uh, when, I, when we drove out there, I heard that shots had been fired. A group of us drove out, and then we were prevented from going in the area by uh, a large uh, number of RCMP here. Uh, in any case, we drove uh, across a field and uh, and found uh, a major uh, episode taking shape. That's Milton born with a tooth here. Uh, he was uh, eventually charged with uh, shooting two shots. The whole thing was to oppose the Old Man Dam, which is being, uh, which was being installed up the river from the Pagan Reserve. Um, the Old Man Dam is sitting in all its glory. Uh, now, it was very, very controversial, the final stages of, of putting uh, that dam in place. I've never really seen this area split and polarized like it was around that issue. Um, so uh, Milton became a kind of flashpoint. He was on the cover of the Calgary Herald and the Alberta Report being uh, fairly demonized quite uh, consistently in that publication. This is a police helicopter, some kind of ceremony taking place. Um, here's uh, Milton holding court with the uh, media. In any case, uh, uh, that was uh, a very tense uh, situation in the local community. Uh, the community, the Pagan community, were split on whether to support Milton or not. Uh, it was uh, highly uh, divisive. Um, two people were charged. One was Milton Bourne with the tooth, who was charged with firing two shots, and the other was uh, me. I was charged with uh, speaking too loud in a public place in a speech I gave at the head smashed in Buffalo Jump Interpretive Center. So I guess you can dissent in Alberta, but you must speak quite gently and softly. Um, um, anyway, the concept of walking into a museum and using the museum as a backdrop to talk about current events. And of course, the government of Alberta was very adamant about keeping to the position that it controlled the river, the water, all the entire project. Uh, and the case could be made, and I did make the case that no, there were fish involved, there were Indians involved, both are federal jurisdictions. Eventually the federal court agreed, ordered the federal government to do a, 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 an environmental um, assessment, an ERP. The uh, provincial government wouldn't take part. I remember the hearings took place in the sub in the student union building. 
and uh, the provincial government was in the building, but they wouldn't acknowledge the proceedings, the federal proceedings, but they were down in the basement uh, with their various adver advertising uh, documents there. Um, before leaving the subject, uh, I thought I would try to sort of make it a little lighter. Here, here is a uh, uh, Everett Soup's cartoon work. There's Everett Soup, uh, uh, one of the great intellects of the foothills. Um, this is a very famous cartoon, uh, which uh, if you have some experience in Indian country, it kind of resonates. Uh, I see my tribe is still behind me, the chief with uh, arrows up his back. Um, so uh, Everett was on uh, chief and council. He was a cartoonist in the famous uh, Kainai News. Uh, he, he could be pretty irreverent. Uh, uh, with his cartoons, there was really no sacred cows for him. I think he was also very, uh, very uh, affectionate towards his people. The wow is a pow wow. Um, I think you can see the affection in this in this uh, cartoon work. Here's a interesting cartoon. Uh, we thank you for the land we're about to receive. I guess this is a take on. Uh, Thanksgiving. So, uh, uh, so th this theme, uh, I would argue, is very important to understanding the different approaches to nation building, the different approaches to sovereignty, the different approaches to orienting yourself to where is here, to what is here. Do you acknowledge the society, the older society? Do you make room for it? Do you try to eliminate the older society? Uh, how does that affect the kind of society that you create subsequently? How does that create uh, the orientation to, say, empire building? Uh, I think the United States, its orientation to westward expansion uh, has a lot to do with affecting the way the United States acts now. Um, and I made that case in, in different contexts. I'm heading towards uh, Toussaint Louverture, but uh, and I see I see a, a sort of community of interest between Tecumseh and Toussaint Louverture. Uh, both Tecumseh and Toussaint Louverture were speaking for constituencies that were very marginalized: the indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere, the black slaves of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, both were on the verge of getting recognition in international law uh, for their constituencies. So beginning with the donation of the Western Hemisphere to the crown of Castile and Aragon in 1493, to the crown of Spain in 1493, uh, there has been uh, a pattern whereby the European countries saw themselves as a superior type of polity, a higher type of polity, capable of colonizing the planet, capable of handing out morsels of, the, of, of Asia, of Africa, of the Western Hemisphere, of dividing it up amongst themselves and excluding the vast majority of people from the planet from any representation in this type of exercise where the planet is carved up and passed out like so much uh, uh, buffet or you know so, so much morsels of, of land, other people's land. Uh, 
so uh, both Tucson Louverture and Tecumseh uh, challenged that. And if they had been uh, recognized, they would have changed uh, the international system. Of course, the United States is, a, is an ironic kind of place, going back to McNeil's emphasis on these incompatibilities, these tensions within the West. Uh, the United States, in a sense, comes out of a rebellion against European imperialism, a revolt against British imperialism. On the other hand, the United States becomes a kind of progeny or an agent or almost like a, a designate of the European powers, a go-between. Uh, so the United States represents the new world to, to Europe. So the United States got a kind of uh, entry into the international community of nations as a kind of white nation, as a kind of European nation. And uh, so there's always been that irony where the United States, in a sense, is born out of opposition to imperialism, and yet the United States comes to embody uh, a very new kind of imperialism, in a sense, certain sense a lawless imperialism a laissez-faire imperialism, an imperialism which gives their companies the maximum latitude to do global business with as little constraints as possible. So you don't have Kodak or Xerox or ExxonMobil being in the same kind of company as, say, the East India Company or the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, so let's go into some of the roots of this. Uh, now, these, these maps here are from the American Empire in the Fourth World, and these are custom-made maps. I, I sat with uh, Robin Poitras at the University of Calgary, and uh, uh, we just designed these maps. He had the know-how to use a software program that uh, could create these maps. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm basically trying to tell a story with these maps. So British North America following, following the incorporation of Canada, 1763. So British North America is dramatically expanded with the addition of Canada after 1759, after the army of the British meet the army of the French on the Plains of Abraham in 1759. Canada falls to the conquest of the British army uh, the, Brit the French military more or less vacate. They escape down the Mississippi Valley. Uh, the French Canadians, the mass of French Canadians, continue to live in North America. Uh, it's just the small leadership, the military leadership, who, who leave and depart. So the British government is faced with how do they incorporate Canada into British North America or into the British Empire. Um, and um, so they create a new colony known as Quebec. And Quebec is much smaller than Canada or New France. Uh, it's basically the St. Lawrence Valley. And so it's acknowledged that this uh, new British colony of Quebec is dominated by French Catholics. So there is a, an adaptation of the British imperial system to incorporate uh, Catholicism. Um, of course, the, you know, there was a, an anti-Catholic kind of policy going back into the days of the Civil War in, in Great Britain. So they changed that in North America. 
um, and uh, eventually accept the, the system of land tenure that prevailed in, in New France uh, and create this new colony called Quebec with the view that this is to be dominated by and to incorporate the French Canadians or Can the Canadian into the British Empire. And they create a, a jurisdiction called East Florida and West Florida. And the Royal Proclamation also deals with the island of Grenada. And then there's a fifth jurisdiction that there's a border drawn on these Anglo-American colonies, these British colonies like Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia. They actually conceive of a border, a western border. And that border is the watershed line. The lands drained by waters flowing to the east are these 13 colonies. The Mississippi Valley, the lands drained by waters flowing to the west, including the Ohio River. This becomes something called lands reserved for the Indians as their hunting grounds. And to reserve land for the Indians as their hunting grounds was to favor the interests of the Montreal fur trade. And it's amazing to me, it's very interesting how the British move into Montreal and more or less just continue. There's no break in continuity. In fact, the fur trade becomes even bigger under British auspices. They hire the French Canadian men. Many of those French Canadian men have Indian families. They know the interior. They know the Aboriginal languages. They have cousins in the interior, maybe wives children, um, 